John 4, 23. Jesus says, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And of course, that's in the context of Jesus evangelizing the woman at the well, whom, if you remember, he confronts on the sin of adultery. In fact, he says to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. And what's the result? She comes to faith in the Lord Jesus And then she immediately runs off to tell her entire town of Sychar who she's been talking to and what he's been saying to her. So she owns her sin, she confesses it, and then she starts proclaiming the good news of the gospel so that the entire town comes out and worships Jesus, saying, we now know that this is the Savior of the world. So God is seeking true worshipers. People who own their sin, confess it, and live lives that are radically different than a world around them. In fact, 1 Peter 2.9 says that as believers in Christ, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or you think of the call to worship this morning, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven, it says, all the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord and all the families of the world shall worship King Jesus. So we as creatures are created to worship God. In fact, the Westminster Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, of course, is, to glorify God or to worship God and to enjoy him forever. But that's not what we do, is it? No, instead we worship everything else under the sun, but not God. So we walk around praising people, possessions and places, clothing, events, money and movies. Or worse than that, we worship the Holy Trinity of me, myself and I consumed with our own mundane mediocrity rather than being overwhelmed by the majesty of the Almighty. You know, C.S. Lewis says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising mistresses, readers their favorite book, walkers the countryside players their favorite game. So we don't hesitate to praise the weather, the wine, the world, cars, colleges, countries, and our kids. We even praise the rare stamps that we're collecting. But we don't praise God. Not like we ought. But here's the question. What exactly does that worship look like? Well, here's why I think John 4 and the woman at the well is so helpful. Because she owned her sin. She confessed it. And she joyfully lived a life that was radically different than the world around her. So even though she was sexually immoral, she owned it. And she started telling everyone about Jesus. And in that context, Jesus said, an hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
God is seeking people to joyfully worship him in every area of their lives. So publicly, privately, and personally. Not a single area off limits or restricted. Not our relationships, our loyalties, our money, our marriage, our wants, our fears, our affections, or even our motivations. And our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 13, is going to confront us on a number of them. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. I encourage you to have your Bible open, Hebrews 13. And my outline right there in your Bible, acceptable worship, a loving community, a holy community, of motivated community. As you're turning, let me set the context. The author has argued for 10 chapters that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's the better high priest who offers a better sacrifice to establish a better covenant. Jesus is better across the board. Therefore, we must run with endurance the race set before us looking to Jesus because getting Jesus is the finish line. And yet, running looks like something. That's why Hebrews 12, look at Hebrews 12, verse 28, says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God, notice, acceptable worship, with awe and reverence, for our God is a consuming fire. And what exactly does acceptable worship look like? (coughs) Chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. If you would follow along as I read. Let brotherly love... Continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, are you feeling the radical transition from the rest of Hebrews? Because we've gone through some pretty intense theological discussions including explaining the importance of Melchizedek, Sabbath rest, the Old Covenant, and the ineffectiveness of the Old Testament Levitical priests. We've come through all of that, high theology, to verse 1, chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Now, it's helpful to notice that transition because it reminds us that Hebrews is a letter. So yes, it's a sermon, but nonetheless, a letter written to real people who are really struggling, really being persecuted, and are really just trying to figure out what it looks like to run with endurance the race that is set before them, looking to Jesus, and what it looks like to offer to God acceptable worship. So in many ways, it's just like the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 to 11 is all theology. But then you come to chapter 12, and Paul says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. 
Paul says, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then Paul transitions to describe exactly what that spiritual service of worship looks like. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, and be devoted to one another in brotherly love. My point in telling you that is that right theology always leads to right living. So orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Exposition gives way to exhortation. Creed, then conduct. Doctrine, then duty. And the same is true with the book of Hebrews. Because the author just told us all about the glory, majesty, and excellence of coming to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, to the new Jerusalem, the the festal gathering, and being in the presence of the Lord Jesus. So the glorious doctrine of the things yet to come And yet we still live in the here and now. So how do we do that? Well, verse 28, be grateful and offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like love. Number one, a loving community with love towards believers, love towards strangers, and love towards prisoners. So acceptable worship includes A, love toward believers. Verse 1 says, let, let brotherly love continue. Now, this is obviously not a new idea, right? It's all over the New Testament, including Jesus saying, John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. For by this, your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. 1 John 4, 7 clarifies that we love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In fact, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 20 says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, that man is a liar. But it's because you can't love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother or sister in Christ who you see every day. Love is essential to our faith in Christ and actually confirms that we truly have faith in Christ. And it's not hard to see, because it should be evident and obvious to everyone and demonstrate itself in very real and in very practical ways, like serving and sacrificing for one another, like being kind and considerate, like making meals for one another when we're not feeling well or someone has a baby, which around here happens about every other week. There's lots of meals that can be made. That's a practical demonstration of love. But it also includes being devoted to one another and honoring one another, which means we speak well of one another and we assume the best of one another. We counsel and care for one another. We encourage and we edify one another. And we bear one another's burdens. Accepting, appreciating, and accommodating one another. But it also means we're not afraid to speak truth into one another's lives. I mean, remember the command in Hebrews 3.13. To exhort one another every day, as long as it's still called today that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So brotherly love is not just a smile and a handshake on Sunday mornings. 
But it must play itself out Monday through Saturday in all of the trials and difficulties of life. Which is why our life groups are so important. Because that's where you get to know one another well enough to meet those practical needs. To be the person who takes the phone call or meets for coffee when things are just not going very well in our lives. Or is happy to be an extra set of hands to clean the garage or rake the leaves or put the air conditioners in before it gets too hot. Brotherly love has to be more than just words, but action in real life scenarios. But now I want you to look again at verse 1. Notice how the author says, let brotherly love continue. That word continue is a synonym for perseverance. So the author is saying persevere in your love for one another. Now just think about that in the original context. Because these dear believers are being persecuted and they're suffering for their faith, which is really hard. And what tends to happen in situations that are stressful and uncertain? Well, we get short with one another, don't we? And our relationships get strained. And rather than loving one another, we're harsh with our words and we're unkind with our actions. So what does the author say? Let brotherly love continue. Make the conscious decision that you're going to persevere in your care for others. Now, you know, we're not in the midst of persecution. But I think the same thing can happen when people have been believers for a while. So when you first come to faith, right, everything is perfect. You just can't believe that God saved you. And you think everyone in the church is just so stinking wonderful. I mean, they're so kind and so helpful. And they're so knowledgeable about the Bible, right? Every time you talk to somebody, they quote something. You don't even know where that is in the Bible. They all seem so knowledgeable. And they don't seem to have any problems or any flaws whatsoever. They're just this loving body of believers. But then something happens. And one of those people hurts you. Or there's a misunderstanding. Or there's miscommunication. Or someone sins against you and there's no reconciliation. And then suddenly those rose-colored glasses are off. And you recognize very clearly that people are not perfect. And it becomes easier and easier to distance yourself just so that you don't get hurt. You might even make the decision to move churches and just decide to not plug in so much this time. What does verse 1 say? Let brotherly love Continue, which is a command. So it's making the choice to obey, that you're going to engage, that you're going to actively choose to love the people in this congregation, even the ones who are not easy for you to love. 
So let me just ask, how are you doing with loving the people in this church? Are you working hard to serve them and to sacrifice for them? Not sitting on the periphery, but actively engaging people's lives, loving them in real and practical ways? Or are there people that you're avoiding? So people that you're purposely not loving and not engaging with. Let me say to you, Christ's Proclamation Church, let brotherly love continue. Work hard to persevere in your love for one another because that's what acceptable worship looks like. But it's not just in the church, is it? No, it's in the community as well. So don't just love believers, but B, show love towards strangers. That's why verse 2 says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So essentially, brotherly love should extend beyond the church and into the community to people that you don't know because that's what a stranger is. It's a person you haven't met yet. And by the way, this idea of hospitality is all over the New Testament, primarily because traveling was not as easy back then as it is today. So you couldn't just jump on Expedia to book a room and a flight and be guaranteed the same level of service all around the world. No, travel was extremely dangerous in the first century world with robbers and thieves and miserable hotels. So you had to entrust yourself to strangers, to people that you don't know, for them to put you up for the night and to host you. So it was a big deal. That's why Romans 12, 14 commands us to practice hospitality. First Peter 4, 9 says, be hospitable without grumbling. That's helpful. Be hospitable and don't grumble about it. And according to Paul, a man couldn't serve as an elder or a woman be supported as a widow if they weren't a person well-known for practicing hospitality. So this is really important. But it continues to be one of the most obvious ways to demonstrate love towards a stranger, to have them over to your home, to give them food to eat and a place to feel rested and restored. And who knows? By doing so, you might even entertain angels. Now, the most obvious example of that is Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. So Abraham was just sitting there at the door of his tent when suddenly three strangers appeared. Do you remember how he responded? Listen to this. Genesis 18.2 tells us this is how Abraham responded. When Abraham saw them, he ran out to them and he greeted them. He bowed low to the earth and he said to them, Masters, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. But instead, let me bring you water to wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring you bread so that you might be restored, that you might be refreshed. And then Abraham goes off running not only for Sarah to bake some bread, but to grab the fatted calf, get a young man to prepare it, and then to pick up curds and milk. What are the curds and milk for? It's an appetizer for them to eat while they wait for the food to be cooked. 
And then verse 8 tells us this. And Abraham stood by like a waiter under the tree while they ate their food. That's incredible customer service if you ask me. So yes, it's true. We're not totally sure who we're hosting. Might be angels. But either way, we should love people in our community like that. Like Abraham did for those visitors. So let me just ask. When's the last time you had your neighbors over for dinner? Or when's the last time you engaged a stranger on the street? Or in the coffee shop? And you just had an encouraging conversation with them? Or even how many people in this church know where you live? Or what the inside of your house looks like? If you're married, how many singles have you had over to your house? If you're single, how many couples or families have you hosted for dinner? Or are you quick to say, we should have you over for dinner sometime, but then you never deliver? The main idea here is hospitality in your home. And again, notice the language. Verse 2, the author says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So again, that's a command that we should be obeying. So here's an idea for you. What if every Sunday you came to church with a meal back home in the crock pot? Or you had meat in the freezer ready to throw on the grill? Preferably hamburgers and brats. Just a suggestion. <laughs> right? What, what, what if you had that already at home this morning, ready to be served in less than 30 minutes? So that every Sunday, you could invite another single or couple or family who you don't know, so a stranger, over to eat with you. The command here is that we not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, to people that we don't know which some of us need to grow in. And yet that's what acceptable worship looks like. It's very practical. But it's not just love toward believers or love toward strangers, is it? No, it's also, see, love towards prisoners. Verse 3 says, remember, those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Now, helpful to know, this is not a new category for these folks meaning they've already experienced this kind of persecution before, including suffering and being thrown into prison just for believing in Jesus. That all happened under Emperor Claudius, 49 AD. There were riots in the Jewish quarter that happened when a large number of Jewish people became Christians and therefore were banished from the synagogues. So essentially, because of the uproar, Claudius got sick of it and he threw all the Christians either into jail or he threw them out of the city altogether. My point is, that happened before. And these dear believers endured struggles, suffering, persecution, and were thrown into prison. And in the past, Hebrews 10.34 tells us the other believers in the church had compassion on them. Compassion on those who were thrown into prison. Meaning they identified themselves with their fellow Christians and they cared for them, which is a very big deal. 
Because in the first century, prisoners had no way of surviving apart from their friends and families who brought them food and water and clothing. And those visits to the prison came at great risk because you weren't just identifying with the person in prison. You were identifying yourself with the Lord Jesus. Which brings great clarity to Jesus' words in Matthew 25. That when I was hungry, you gave me food. That when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. That when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was in prison, you came and you visited me. And the context of that parable is the final judgment. And Jesus says to all those who cared for others... You will be blessed by my Father, and you will inherit the internal, unshakable kingdom that is prepared for you. So we should not only identify with Christ, but we should identify ourselves with fellow Christians who are being persecuted for the name of Christ. Now, we obviously don't have a lot of opportunities to do that, do we? We're not being persecuted like that. We don't have people who are being thrown into prison because they identify with the Lord Jesus. But the early church had an incredible reputation for caring for those in need. Just listen to this one story that I read. It said, if they Christians hear that any of their number are imprisoned or impressed in any way for the name of Christ, all of them provide for their needs. And if it is at all possible for the imprisoned to be delivered, then they make sure to deliver them. In fact, if there is any among them who are poor or needy and don't have any abundance, they will fast for two or three days just to supply them with food to eat. Isn't that beautiful? That not a single one of them was lacking. Not a single one of them was in need or in trouble without fellow Christians coming to the rescue. What does that remind you of? Does that not remind you of family? That's what we do for family. Well, this is the family of God, known by all for their love for one another because they're a loving community. And I'm just wondering if you get that this morning. That we as the people of God should be brothers and sisters in Christ who are known for our love for one another, our love for strangers, our love for people in the community, and our love towards any one of us who has need. But we're not just called to be a loving community, are we? We're called to be a holy community as well. Look at verse 4. The author continues to say, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, Tim Keller once said, love without truth is sentimentalism because it supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about who God really is. And truth without love is harsh because it gives us right doctrine about God, but in such a way that it's hard to hear. 
Which is why the author of Hebrews is commanding that we be not just a loving community, but we be a holy community. And that includes very practical things like, A, holding marriage in high regard, which is not an easy thing to do in our current culture, which openly affirms gay marriage and determining your own sexual identity and sexual orientation. Yet nonetheless, this is the culture in which we're called and commanded to faithfully preach the gospel, which means every single one of us needs to recognize that marriage between one man and one woman is not a secondary issue, but is a gospel issue. Because it has everything to do with the reality that there is a God who deserves to be worshipped and a God who has spoken inerrantly and authoritatively on this specific topic. Again, Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So here's the question. What does that look like? Well, for starters, I think it's super helpful to recognize that he doesn't come out saying, don't commit adultery, don't practice homosexuality, don't be sexually impure. Now, the Bible certainly speaks to all of those things. But here he says, let marriage be held in honor among all. So it's a positive orientation to marriage. Meaning we recognize it's a good and glorious gift that God has given to us. So we should joyfully affirm it, personally honor it, privately practice it, and publicly declare the abundant blessings that come when we rightly prioritize that sex belongs exclusively in the context of a monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. We should openly celebrate that. I mean, just think of all the sexual perversions that are celebrated in our culture. And yet this is truth. Let us not be ashamed or afraid to glory in the good gift that God has given to us in marriage. And that has to be not just in words, but in action. So being believers who work hard at having fantastic marriages where we accept, appreciate, and accommodate our spouses so our relationships thrive physically, emotionally, and sexually. We need to be a people who practice what we preach with zero tolerance on any sexual perversion or impurity, meaning no pornography, no masturbation, no flirting, no physical contact, no emotional attachment, and no sexual infidelity. It shouldn't even be named among us. But instead, marriages that thrive for the glory of God and singles, no doubt, this includes you. In fact, in so many ways, you have the hardest job because you're affirming and you're declaring these truths in an ocean of people who disagree with you who think you're crazy and who actually try to persuade you of the very thing you know to be wrong in your heads, but no doubt tempts you in your heart. And for all of us, that includes knowing that to live consistently contrary to this puts into question the very fact as to whether or not we're Christians. 
Because the author says that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So what should we do if we struggle? What should we do if we stumble or we fall in the area of sexual immorality? It means we should look to Jesus. Because of course we're going to struggle. Of course we're going to stumble. That's a given. But that doesn't mean we're okay with it. And it doesn't mean that we continue in it without turning from it and repenting and running back to the Lord Jesus. Be clear. Christianity is not about perfection, but it is about progress. And it's about being in total agreement with what God declares to be true in his word and how he calls and he commands us to live, which has to include holding marriage in high regard. So let me ask, how are you doing with that? Are you delighting in the good gifts that God has given to you? Either in marriage or in being single? And how are you doing with remaining sexually pure in word and thought and action? I pray that we would be a church where marriage is held in high regard by all and where sexual purity is affirmed and practiced because that's what acceptable worship looks like. But it's not just our marriages, is it? No, he continues. It's also our money. Verse 5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For or because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the first thing I want you to see is that the ability to be content is grounded in the fact that God will never leave you nor forsake you. So essentially, God's got you. So you don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious. And you certainly don't need to be consumed about money. Now, does that mean that you don't need to work or have a job or do something to provide for your basic needs? No, of course you need to work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, if you're not willing to work, then you shouldn't eat. But that's radically different than being anxious, worried, or consumed with money. And remember, we're talking about offering to God acceptable worship with awe and reverence. So Jesus' words in Matthew 6 are super helpful because he calls and commands us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, knowing that all these things are going to be added to us. What are all these things? Food, clothing, shelter. The basic necessities of life, which is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, be content with those things, which, by the way, happens naturally when we're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness rather than the world's orientation. What is the world's orientation towards stuff? What do you see on every bumper sticker? He who has the most toys when he dies wins. Have you ever thought about how foolish that statement is? He who has the most toys when he dies wins? That's not true. He who has the most toys when he dies still dies. He's dead. Where are his toys? 
still here. You can't take them with you. Right? There's, there's no U-Haul trailer behind a hearse. You know, John D. Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men in the world when he lived. Yet after he died, someone asked his accountant, how much did he leave? And the accountant rightly said, he left it all. <laughs> you can't take it with you. Do you know that this morning? Are you living like that? Make sure you're free from the love of money. Make sure your heart and your affections, your, your time, your effort, your wealth are all focused on things that are impacting people's souls for eternity. Because that's what it means to worship God with your wealth, which is radically different than saying it's wrong or sinful to be wealthy. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, as for the rich in this present age, no problem being rich, no problem being wealthy. But he tells you how to think about your wealth. He says, charge them to not be haughty, not to be proud, or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. But to set their hope on God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share with anyone in need. Thus, storing up treasures in the unshakable kingdom yet to come. So let me ask, is your hope fixed on Jesus? Is your hope fixed on the salvation that is yours in him? Is he truly the joy and the treasure of your life? And are you actively, with your money, storing up treasures in the unshakable kingdom that is yet to come? Or if you're honest, is your hope fixed on the uncertainty of riches, the love of money, and the desire, insatiable desire for stuff? You know what the love of money is like? It's like drinking seawater. Seawater, as you know, has high concentrations of salt, which means the more you drink, the thirstier you get. In fact, drinking seawater causes you to become more and more dehydrated, and if you keep drinking seawater, you'll eventually go unconscious and you'll die. That's what the love of money is like. The more you have, the more you want. And the more you want, the more you move away from loving God, treasuring Christ, and worshiping Him rightly. So then what should we do? We should listen to the command to keep our lives free from the love of money and to work hard to be content with what we have which means we make sure that our hope, so, so all that we believe, all that we cling to, all that we know for certain is grounded in God and the salvation he so generously provides for us in Jesus. And we should work hard to protect ourselves from the deceitfulness of riches and the pull of materialism. How do we do that? Well, rather than buying more stuff, 
that we don't need, we should give. That's how you break the temptation for materialism and the love of money. You stop buying and you start giving. Give generously. Give sacrificially. And I would say give joyfully as an act of worship which will promote great contentment in your life. And what's the result? You will thrive eternally because you're storing up treasures in heaven. My deepest desire is that we be a church that lives simply and gives sacrificially so that we might thrive eternally because that's what it looks like to worship God rightly with awe and reverence with regard to our money. But we're not just called to be a loving community and a holy community, although the two of them together are absolutely essential to being the people of God. But we must also be see a motivated community. Verse 6 tells us exactly how we're able to do the first two. The author says, so or therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, please notice how the right thinking of knowing the Lord is my helper leads to the right feeling of I will not fear and the right action of saying, what can man do to me? I wholeheartedly believe this is how it works, that right thinking always leads to right living. So what's the one thing we must absolutely know to have right thinking? It's that God is our helper, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he is with us, that he is for us, and that he has demonstrated that so clearly in the Lord Jesus who has done everything necessary for our salvation. Which means what? What's, what's the practical take-home of that command? It's that we can trust him. We can wholeheartedly trust him. So whatever God brings into our lives, we can know for sure that it's from his hand and it's for our good. And that's absolutely true, whether it's sickness or suffering, trials or tribulations, broken relationships or broken bones. Whatever it is, if you're a believer in Christ, then it's from God's hand and it's for your ultimate, eternal good. Because no good thing does God withhold from those whom he loves. Psalm 84, 11. And that right thinking, knowing that to be true, frees us up so that we're not consumed with lesser things, but instead have right feelings and right actions and be right living. Now, remember where I started this morning, reminding you of John chapter 4 and Jesus' words to the woman at the well, that after confronting her of her sin, he said, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father. How will they worship the Father? In spirit and truth, in love and in holy living. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is seeking people to joyfully worship him in every area of their lives, so publicly, privately, and personally. So not a single area off limits, not a single area restricted. Not our relationships, our loyalties, our money, our marriages, our wants, fears, affections, or our motivations. Which means 
Acceptable worship to the Lord our God with awe and reverence looks like not only being a loving community, but a holy community and a motivated community to do all things for the glory of God. But as we close, let me just bring that down to where the rubber hits the road and give you a quote that has been so helpful to me in my Christian life. John Wesley once said, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you possibly can. Which means, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. And when we fail or we fall down or we stumble or we take a wrong turn, accidentally or intentionally, in running the race that is set before us, the solution is always the same. Look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So that when you stumble or you fall down or you take a wrong turn, you might be forgiven encouraged and strengthened to get back up again and to keep running with endurance. I pray that that would be true of us, that in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus, we would worship him rightly, demonstrated in our love, our holiness, and our motivations, that we would be a people who do all things for the glory of God. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we're so grateful that right thinking leads to right living. Lord, there's no greater thing that we can think rightly about than you. So Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our minds, and in our hearts, that we would delight ourselves in the God of the Bible and the glory that you have sent your Son to die on a cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins, so that we can have the hope of eternal life, and that we can be given the gift of the Spirit that empowers us to live in such a way, instructed by your word, that brings glory and honor and praise to your holy name. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in these people that we might live for your glory. Do that good work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.